Welcome, fool. I believe in the life eternal, as promised to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. Sergeant Howie, West Highland Police. I am here to investigate the disappearance of Rowan Morrison. If she existed, we would know. You suspect foul play? I suspect murder. Sergeant, if I were you, I would go back to the mainland. You wouldn't want to be around here on Navy. Hail the Queen of the Bay! Where is Rowan Morrison? Come. It is time to keep your appointment with the Wicker Man. Oh, Jesus Christ! You simply never understand the true nature of sacrifice. If your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would always you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 272, The Wicker Man. And this is listener request number 28, courtesy of Brian. Is he the leader in the clubhouse for listener requests? I think he tied Justin. Okay. All right. The hardcores. We, of course, are talking about the original, much like last week, this one being the 1973 classic. Similarly to Overboard and that remake, I, I wanted to watch the Nick Cage Wicker Man, which I've heard is uh-huh. legendary in its own way, but <laughs> it really wasn't easily available to stream anywhere right now, so I have not seen it. Yeah, it is one of those things, and this just happens as a movie fan in your coming of age discovering things when the Nicolas Cage one came out I had no idea that there was even an original or anything I know it's now considered like this classic defining horror film to some degree but like I had no idea so what at some point in my life like the Nicolas Cage Wicker Man was the defining one for me and, you know it wasn't great but <laughs> there's things that I and as we go through the episode there's like one or two things that I'm like you know what I think they had that part of it right I'll reveal it as we get there. So before we discuss The Wicker Man, as listener request summer rolls right along, let's remind everyone to follow the show on Twitter, at GreatestPod. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Mm -hmm. etc. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you get a chance. If you'd like a sticker, let us know on Twitter. 
slide into the old DMs or, or whatever, and we'll get that out to you for free. And then find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby. As far as listener request summer goes, next week will be the last one for June, and that will be Theodore, and then we have some more coming the rest of the year. Possibly in the future there'll be an announcement regarding <laughs> listener requests. I don't know. We, we still need to it. think about it. What do you think is more successful, this listener request summer or if One Trashy Summer had just taken place? Which do you think would have better downloads? Negligible I, difference. No. <laughs> One Trashy Summer is tough, but the hardcores enjoy it. Yeah, i already planning on it coming back next year. Totally. I have a quality list of trashy films I'm sure. I'm putting together. Yeah. The Wicker Man was directed by Robin Hardy. Screenplay by Anthony Schaefer. Hardy really did not direct much. I think he only did about four features in his life. Again, something that was totally off my radar, but I was looking at this whole thing that he did, The Wicker Tree, right? not that long ago. But this was not a household name for me. Schaefer did write other noteworthy things. This is actually probably, at the time when this movie was ignored upon its release was probably one mm. of his lesser projects to be gotcha. honest it's loosely based upon the novel ritual by david pinner although he is uncredited because the story ended up going in completely different places but A he did get paid departure. the budget was five hundred thousand. didn't really have anything at the box office like i said this movie there were a lot of issues with its release and it, sure. it quietly slipped away for a few years until it was rediscovered and then slowly built its reputation over time. It was a great story when that can happen, though. Yeah, and there are actual films that do deserve that sort of reevaluation, although I think nowadays, because of Twitter and how annoying everyone is, they're uh-huh. reevaluating films that really don't deserve it and are terrible. Or and have reevaluating terrible. it in a negative way. Oh, well, yeah, that yeah, that too. But <laughs> That's almost for like a different sure. reason. Reevaluating movies that were panned upon initial release and then now everyone acts like they're great southland tales i think that that's more wanting to be a part of some movement that is changing something or just stupid nostalgia no i'm not even talking about south i'm talking about movies that are popular i don't really want to get into it but okay you know we don't want to upset the letterbox fan base this movie comes about when Christopher Lee and Anthony Schaefer meet up. Lee wants to break free from his hammer horror image. Look, I know of Christopher Lee being a big actor, but mostly as an old dude. You know what I mean? Well, his most famous stuff was playing Dracula and Frankenstein's yeah, okay. monster and right. stuff uh, in, yeah, in yeah. countless films. Makes sense. They get director Robin Hardy involved, and they want to focus on the idea of old religion and a story around that. And they use Ritual, the novel, as a jumping-off point. They paid Pinner 15k, and they kind of go from there. Lee was extremely keen to get this film made, and the rumor has it worked for no pay, and hmm. actually paid for his own press tour and was willing to go anywhere to try to promote it. Kind of sounds like the show. There were rumors also about some of the other actors not working for pay either, but I don't really know who or or what the deal was. Schaefer wanted the film to be, quote, a little more literate than the average horror picture. He specifically wanted a film with a minimum of violence and gore. He was tired of seeing horror films that relied almost entirely on Viscera to be scary. Oh, yeah. One of the things that is great about this movie is that slow building sense of dread or it just dawning on you. 
that you're an idiot <laughs> as the character. The focus of the film was crystallized when he, quote, finally hit upon the abstract concept of sacrifice. The image of the Wicker Man, which gave the filmmakers their title, was taken from the description of the practice of human sacrifice by the Gauls in Julius Caesar's commentaries on the Gallic War. Mm. Others have figures of vast size, the limbs of which formed of osiers they fill with living men, which being set on fire, the men perish, enveloped in the flames. Yeah, being burned to death, not something I'm in a hurry to test out. For Schaefer, this was the most alarming and imposing image that I had ever seen. He said, The idea of a confrontation between a modern Christian and a remote pagan community continued to intrigue Schaefer, who performed painstaking research on paganism. Brainstorming with Hardy, they conceived the film as presenting the pagan elements objectively and accurately, accompanied by authentic music and a believable contemporary setting. So the film was actually shot almost entirely in the small Scottish towns of Stratton Rare and Gatehouse of Fleet, <laughs> Newton Stewart, Kirk Cudbright, Anwith and Creetown in Galway, as well as Plockton and Rossshire. I don't know where they're at, but they totally look like my type of place. Some scenes were filmed in and around the Isle of Whithorn, where the owners of the castle, plus several other people, featured in various scenes. And those opening shots of him like flying and landing in the bay around the island pretty awesome some of those were not around scotland though, sure because the trees were bare because this is supposed to take place in the spring and it was filmed in the fall so they had to adjust some stuff yeah makes sense one thing that jumps out to me about this is the involvement of the Swedish actress model, Britt Eklund, which there will be tons of stuff that we have to talk about with her throughout the Some film. Some material. As I said, a lot of this was filmed in Galway in Scotland in 1972, and there was some controversy when Eklund labeled it as, quote, the bleakest place on earth, <laughs> and the producers were forced to apologize to the locals. Oh, boy. And it was shades of Sienna Miller calling Pittsburgh Schittsburg during well, the filming of The Mysteries of Pittsburgh. She walked it back. <laughs> yeah. There'll be more to come on Brit in this movie. So the interesting thing, I guess, for people who, who aren't super familiar with The Wicker Man is that it's sort of a, a horror musical. <laughs> they intertwine these folk songs oh, yeah. that feel very real and legitimate into the story. It's hard to explain it because when you hear musical, you're thinking, okay... Is this like Rocky Horror Picture Show? Is it lighthearted? Is it a comedy? But no, it really isn't. It's mostly a horror movie with some musical numbers thrown in along the way. Right. One or two of them are kind of funny, but most of them are sort of weave into the dread in their own way. Some are trippy. Some are almost comedic. They're all composed, arranged, and recorded by Paul Giovanni, performed by Magnet, in some versions of the film credited as Lodestone. I'm not really sure why. They're all folk songs, and they have this eerie quality. And partially because of that, and partially because of the subject matter and the location and everything and the overall aesthetic, The Wicker Man fits nicely into a short-lived subgenre called folk horror, hmm. which includes films like Witchfinder General from 1968 and The Blood on Satan's Claw from 1971. Not exactly my genre. But... I've seen the latter. Okay. I, I've never seen Witchfinder General, although I have heard of it. 
the more modern representation, a film that I'm sure we'll touch on several times is Midsummer, which borrows right. a lot from this movie. Yeah, absolutely. I was definitely seeing the influence there. I had seen this movie before, but like I was telling you before the show, it had probably been a good 15 or 16 years since I watched it. So in preparation for this episode, I watched three different cuts of the film. There are other cuts that supposedly exist, although I don't think they're widely available anywhere. There's missing material. I don't think that the actual original, original, original director's cut exists anymore. But the versions that are available on the latest Blu-ray set, which is an import from Australia, but it's a brand called Imprint that does good stuff. Oh, and yeah, It includes three different versions. The theatrical cut, which is 88 minutes... The director's cut, which is 101 minutes, and there are some significant differences in the director's cut, yeah, which we'll touch on as we go. And then the final cut, which is 93 minutes, so it's sort of a balance between the two. I would say that in terms of similarity, the theatrical cut and the final cut feel more similar. The director's cut has a lot of extra material that kind of bogs it down a little bit at the beginning, and it actually feels smoother to jump right into it as fast as you can yeah. i think you get the point you don't need to right. have too much on the mainland although there is some beneficial information that we'll touch on that may help shed yeah. some light on some things and i'd watch the final cut but when you were telling me that the theatrical cut just gets right into him heading towards the island i think that's a fine opening to the movie i think that works look you get the backstory on this dude as you go through it right we yeah and i think the... they do include the one flashback of him reciting the thing in church so you you sort of get it with him as with most things i i tend to think that there's pros and cons to each of the cuts although the director's cut is a little bit too long for this material not that 101 minutes is like a huge commitment but when you've seen the shorter versions you feel like you get it and the added material isn't that crucial to anything but there's been various other cuts and restorations, etc. There's been scenes that have never been included in any release, and so no one has ever really seen. It's Blade Runner. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> when it was initially released, it was the bottom half of a double bill with the 1973 horror classic Don't Look Now. It does feel like a good companion movie for it. Yeah, I think so. Eventually, we will cover Don't Look Now on <laughs> the show. That's another one famously on the list many a time. It's gotten bumped for sure. various reasons. Uh-huh. Over the years, over the decades, I think starting probably by the end of the 70s, The Wicker Man started to transition from obscurity to an essential horror classic, an iconic 70s vision, and people started to appreciate it, thanks in part to some crucial articles, one of which was referring to it as the Citizen Kane of I horror did films. S- I saw that quote out there, yeah. And it started to develop this reputation, and people, I think... It's odd to say this, but it may have been slightly ahead of its time. Because, as I noted with Schaefer's intent, he was trying to push back against yeah. what he saw as like too much of a reliance on violence. And perhaps it just felt slower and more boring to what people were accustomed to. So it took time yeah. for people to catch up to what this was trying to do. And don't get it twisted. It is weird. It's definitely a weird movie. <laughs> yeah, and it it's tackling a subject that I think certain filmmakers have returned to in various ways which is horror no it's about trauma you see gaslighting sure this is a movie about gaslighting (laughs) and it draws comparisons to other movies like that but those other movies are much more recent right and i think that 
it just was a, a different approach to horror that people weren't accustomed to. Definitely. Wasn't Christopher Lee offering to like pay critics to go see this? Yeah, that sounds possible based on what was going on. I mean, I don't think anybody took him up on that. Nobody was charging him, but he was really out there like championing this movie. Yeah, he felt very pigeonholed. I think when you were in that Hammer production crew, you sort of fell into it. Another person from this film, Ingrid Pitt, who plays the librarian, was also a Hammer horror regular. In some ways, it's not like a one-to-one comparison because Hammer is, it goes way further back even, but it's sort of like the Roger Corman equivalent or something in England where it's a lot of the same people making Sure these films over and over and the hammer stuff is like high quality and top notch but it's it's very segregated and i think he was trying to become more of a legitimate actor which is weird because this is a horror film and it his career certainly for younger people is more defined by the end of his life which was star wars and Lord lord of the rings the main difference to me between the wicker man and midsummer is proximity the wicker man is a uk film and it's set in Scotland, which is essentially its own backyard, these little islands. And I think that there was a real terror because of a lack of internet, a lack of information. You could believe that this was maybe a real island, and it's right in your own backyard. And it felt like people you knew yeah, and could see out, especially if you lived in Scotland or something. Whereas Midsummer is an American film. Uh-huh. It takes place in the middle of a European country that most Americans do not go to right. or think about. Doesn't even feel like it's like a possibility that it's going to be part of your life. Yeah, it feels distant and you're not confronted directly with it. I think like Wicker Man's like a little bit more subtle along the way. Midsummer, I feel like the signs to bail are like way more in your face way earlier. Yeah, it's more of a commentary on the obliviousness yeah, of yeah. young people and Americans and stuff like that. It's not quite the same message that they're going for in this one, which is positioning conservative culture versus right. more open-mindedness sure. in terms of sexuality and things like that. Because the 1970s was a time of upheaval in in Britain. Obviously, we're coming out of the, the swinging 60s, and the Bummer. sexual repression was slowly lifting. It was at this time that filmmakers started to explore sexuality differently. Nudity on film had once been a source of scandal, but it was now growing more popular and was treated more naturally than it ever had been. And so the filmmakers here, Hardy and Schaefer, wanted to explore this more. The idea of creating a contemporary society that was pre-Christian and quite liberal when it came to sex. And for early 70s British filmmaking... This has a lot of nudity. (laughs) It's not insane, and I think its reputation is oddly bigger than what you actually get, but... Totally. Even you and I having discussions like leading up to me re-watching this, it was a little bit more tame than I think I was expecting. Yeah, but compared to what it was up against in Britain at the time, it's it's pretty shocking. I do think that there's one scene in particular that probably seemed shocking to them. I Which think now, I'm because it's right in one. high def, that yeah. <laughs> it's not. Although it wasn't like some big secret, but I think to your average moviegoer, they probably thought they were seeing something that they weren't actually seeing. But that is essentially what the movie is about. It's this conflict between the old religions and modern day Christianity, and, and and like breaking away from it. 
and the taboo of sexuality and different feelings on bigger topics like religion, like sexuality, and then this 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 inevitable conflict between the two, and this internal struggle of the main character when he's trying to remain steadfast as uh, an example of the law, but also an example of Christianity in the face of this strange temptation and strange situation that he finds himself in where he doesn't really know what's going on and everyone's acting so weird all the time (laughs) (laughs) yeah like immediately the movie stars edward woodward as sergeant howie what a nerd he would also appear in the film hot fuzz which borrows a lot of elements from this film intentionally so you don't believe in murder it's an homage in some ways Christopher Lee as Lord Summer Isle, Diane Salento as Miss Rose, Britt Eklund as Willow, as I said, more to come on her story, Ingrid Pitt as the librarian, Lindsay Kep as Alder McGregor, who plays Willow's father, although the actor is only four years older than her. Shocking. Irene Sunters as Mae Morrison and assorted others as well. And so, yes, I think that the version that's most common out there is the final cut that was like the standard blu-ray release at least in america so that's the version we're going to be going with the version that matt watched i watched all three it's not a huge difference we're just going to go through it as we usually do i don't really think unless you're familiar with the director's cut which i'm sure most people aren't because it's probably the most obscure of the three like i said there's one major change i think between the theatrical and the final cut, but those two are closer. They're almost the same length, and they're just a tad different. It's a nice, easy run time either way, whichever version you're watching. The film opens on Sunday, the 29th of April, 1973, and so it takes place during the build-up to May Day, and as I mentioned, it was actually filmed in October, so there was a lot of logistical issues. They had to tape leaves to trees and fly in trees for certain shots and do different things to work around the the fall foliage of the time because there was some studio drama going on and there was like a new owner. So they wanted to rush a film into production to show that they weren't going to strip all the assets. And they're like, okay, we'll rush this in. And then it all got messed up anyway and whatever. So they were filming this a little ahead of probably when they wanted to. The opening in the final cut is a little bit of a hybrid between the theatrical and the directors. It's much more extended in the director's cut. We spend more time on the mainland. In fact, it opens with, Sergeant Howie landing his plane, but it's actually landing back at the mainland. You don't know where it was, but right. it seems similar. But then you're like, oh, no, he's not at the island. This yeah, is yeah. a whole other thing. And there's much more going on on the mainland to let you know that he's this devout Christian. He plays by the rules. Some of his coworkers are teasing him about being a virgin, kind of. So you kind of get the idea pretty yeah. quick what the deal is with him. You don't need it, though. It's all revealed throughout the movie in his journey on the island. Yeah, I think a lot of people feel that way. The final cut, though, is, I mean, you're talking like less than a minute, almost. Okay, yeah. On the mainland. So not much. Right. I would say the director's cut is probably about like three or four or five minutes, something uh-huh. like that. There's more extended okay. parts. yeah. And it's not like this is an excruciatingly long movie by any means. Police Sergeant Neil Howie journeys by seaplane to the remote Hebridean Island Summer Isle to investigate the disappearance of a young girl, Rowan Morrison, about whom he has received... An anonymous letter. The Hebrides are a Scottish arpeggio, which is like a strip of islands off of the west coast of the Scottish mainland. The yeah. islands fall into two main groups. 
based on their proximity to the mainland, the inner and outer Hebrides. Summer Isle, of course, is fictional. The place is fictional. Sure, sure, the sure. people are fictional. Yeah, yeah. Question for you. Anonymous letter, what are the chances that you're even opening that envelope? Do you know how much well, mail? What's addressed I'm- to him? <laughs> yeah, I get a lot of mail that's addressed to me that's sitting in a pile from four years yeah, ago. Yeah, but it's like handwritten, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't think there was like as much junk mail <laughs> being sent <laughs> yeah. to the police department <laughs> in Scotland. Several credit card offers a day. The way they were acting about it, they were like, holy shit, we got a letter. <laughs> <laughs> and this one doesn't just say, fuck off, pigs. <laughs> yeah. When he first lands on the island, I do enjoy the initial reluctance and that brick wall he faces oh, yeah. with those guys Unhelpful. standing at the dock. Yeah. It is a lot of talking in circles with these people and it's building to his frustration, right. which of course ends up being intentional, but he feels like he can't make any headway. Then he gets them to admit one thing and then it's like, well, yeah, but this, and then then circling back, <laughs> but it's not this. And then it's that. Well, yeah, that was a person, but she's dead. Well, actually she was a rabbit. The evil eye rowing boat, which takes Sergeant Howie to and from his plane, was not constructed for this movie. It belonged to a resident in the area. And when the producers saw it, they knew it would be perfect for the film. They get like that nice little shot of it. Good day to you, sir. I'm the harbor master. Sergeant Howie, West Highland Police. A missing child is always trouble. Aye, aye, aye. For everybody. Perhaps you would be good enough to explain matters to his lordship. He's most particular who lands here. All in good time. We uh-huh. do have our own particularities. <laughs> you know her. Her name is Rowan Morrison. Uh, no, no, I've never seen her before. I don't know the face either. You're not Kenny. <clears throat> she doesn't belong to this island. No, I never saw her before. Oh, she doesn't belong here at all, Johnny. Yeah. Oh, can't you see her? Now, now, what are you saying? You're saying that she is not from the island. That's right, she's not from here. Uh, no, you'll get Morrison's and Lewis and a few and more. I would try there. Thanks. None of us has seen May Morrison's daughter, Rowan, since last year. She's only 12, and she's been missing from her home for many months. Her mother's name is May Morrison. Oh, May! She quite slipped my memory. Of course we've got May. She keeps the post office in the high street. May Morrison? You're quite sure? Quite sure. Well, thank you for your help. That's not May's daughter, though. No, she's not May's. Then who is she? So, yes, with these guys, it's a lot of running in circles, shifting stories, changing details. It's constantly elusive. It's like David Ferry and JFK. Constantly frustrating. So what he's brought to the island is a picture of the missing girl, Rowan, and a letter. In the director's cut, we get the full text of the letter. And that isn't entirely crucial, but maybe it's a little helpful for people to follow along. Dear Sergeant Howie... None of us have seen May Morrison's daughter, Rowan, since last year. She's only 12 and has been missing from her home for many months. She couldn't have left the island by herself. She's too young. Her mother won't say anything about it, just to mind my own business. Well, I reckon it's all our business when a kid disappears. That's why I'm writing you this letter. Child lover, 
unfortunate choice of words. <laughs> okay. Summer Isle. So it's an anonymous letter. The way that it's set up, though, yeah. it almost feels like the girl with the dragon tattoo. <laughs> oh, yeah. Where he's like, they're on an island. She couldn't have gotten off on her own. The Where is she? Is fucked up. Yeah, I think if there was any more of a preamble, I think it would have been cool if they could have done something in a way that wasn't giving it away, but once you know, you know, a little bit of the backstory on how they sought this guy out. Yeah, well, yeah, they must have been doing their research because right. they picked a perfect mark. Yeah. <laughs> May Morrison actually runs the post office, which doubles as a sweets shop. That is an interesting double business. Horrifying sweets. Yeah. Quote unquote Frogs. sweets. Yeah. Well, not even the frog no. thing, just the weird designs of the cakes and whatever those things are supposed to be and those big chocolate hairs. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Everything looked weird to me. Well, nothing seems overly appealing about this town. Well, some things. You notice that on his way to May's home, no mention of a Mr. Morrison in the picture. No, no. That. How he attracts all of the curiosity that an intruder would entail on an island like this. Everyone's sort of peeking out the windows, checking him out. You have that constant feeling of eyes on you all He's the time. He's getting the uh, optical pat down. May, Rowan's supposed mother, denies the girl in the photo is her daughter. She actually brings Howie to another girl named Myrtle and says Myrtle is her daughter. And then Myrtle talks to Howie for a minute and says that Rowan is a hare <laughs> that plays out in the field. Yeah. People on this island do like hares for some reason. That's true. Although, and do we actually ever see an actual hare? Maybe a dead one. Not a living one. Yeah. His frustration is building on the investigation very quickly. Since Howie is such a devout Christian, he is disturbed to find the islanders paying homage to the pagan Celtic gods of their ancestors. This is the central conflict, in a way, of the entire film. Even more so than the mystery of Rowan Morrison, because... This conflict is something that you revisit. Definitely. Once you know the mystery, it's like any other mystery movie, then you know what the answer is. But the real point, I think, is to have these two forces pulling in opposite directions. Except, of course, Howie is oblivious to that. Like a good Uh policeman, he never strays from the course, even when it would probably benefit him to do so. It takes him a long time to realize that he should probably go back to the mainland for assistance because this is way beyond him. I think it's safe to say he makes a lot of mistakes. Yeah, I would agree, although I I think part of it is he's in denial that it could be what he's thinking, but at a certain point... Well, that's true. He even vocalizes that out loud and in internal thought when we hear that. Can it be? How can this be? These heathens. Well, not even what he thinks happened to Rowan, but like how many people would have to be involved. Right, right. So at a certain point... What is he going to do? He's just one man no, alone No, I know, on an but it, it is clear that it's everyone versus him pretty early on. Right, but I don't think he fully grasps that right, right, at yeah. first. So he stops in at a place called Green Man Inn. Looks like uh, my kind of joint. Green Man is associated with the, the pagan Celtic crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, whatever. It reminded me of the tavern in... A, American Werewolf in London. Yeah, which it, that has a little bit of the folk horror film for at least like the first act. I mean, it kind of goes in a different direction, but that's like a similar feel like in the start. So at the Green Man Inn, how he's going to be able to get a room and board plus some meals and we're introduced to the landlord and the landlord's daughter, yeah. Willow. Big hit in this town, the landlord's daughter. She's got a song about her. 
Every time she appears, the bar patrons are compelled to break out into a song about how hot she is and how she makes everyone horny all the time. Who are these guys, us? Are you the landlord here? I, I'm Alda McGregor. And you must be the policeman from the mainland. Ah, that's right. Sergeant Howie, West Highland Constabulary. Now, I'm quite obviously not going to get back to the mainland tonight. So I wanted to see had a room and a bite of supper I could have. I mean, could you manage that? Aye, I think that can be arranged. My daughter Willow will show you to your room. Willow? Father? This is Sergeant Howie. A policeman from the mainland who will be spending the night with us. This is my daughter, Willow. Good evening. Show the sergeant to his room. Much has been said of the strumpets of yore. Of wenches and bawdy house queens by the score. But I sing of the baggage that we all adore. The landlord's daughter, you'll never love the kind of girl to take home to your mother. <laughs> Her ailet is lively and strong to the taste. It is brewed with discretion, never with haste. You can have all you like if you swear not to waste. The landlord's daughter and when Hearts of every gentleman do stand up at attention. <laughs> oh, nothing can delight so as does the part that lies between her left toe and her right toe. <laughs> My supper now, please. It won't be long, Sergeant. Oh, you don't want to let them worry you. Why don't you have a wee drink? No, thank you, not just now. It's truly outrageous and hilarious. She does seem to love it, and her father does as well. I do have a working theory that that's not really her father because of the age difference thing. I think that's fair, although he does look like an old dude. It seems like they have a weird relationship, though. I think so. I think that's fair. (laughs) Britt Eklund is a Swedish actress and model. She appeared in numerous films in her heyday throughout the 60s and 70s, including The Double Man, The Night They Raided Minsky's, Machine Gun McCain, Stiletto, and Get Carter, which established her as a sex symbol. Hell yeah, Get Carter. She also starred in several horror films, including this the classic the wicker man and also was a bond girl in the man with the golden gun she had a pretty big career her i'd say so participation in this film is endlessly fascinating and it seems to be brought up as little factoids anywhere you look when you're trying to find out about this movie just dominating the imdb trivia section as i mentioned she is swedish i guess they weren't happy with whatever voice she was doing 
So her speaking and singing voices were dubbed by Annie Ross and Rachel Verney, respectively. Though there is some uncertainty about the speaking situations, pretty much everything involving Eklund, there's conflicting reports. <laughs> some sort of double for She everything. may have done some of the voice, even though it sounds the same the whole time. It, it, it's unclear. <laughs> in fact, despite the film being set in Scottish territory and all of the characters are meant to be of Scottish nationality, none of the leading cast are actually Scottish. Christopher Lee and Edward Woodward are English. Diane Salento is Australian. Ingrid Pitt is Polish, in addition to Eklund being a Swede. Well, it adds to like the weird, eclectic mix of this island, where they're like, trying to grow like tropical fruit. In The Green Man, the brick wall routine continues. The islanders appear to be trying to thwart Howie's investigation by claiming that no one knows Rowan, or she never existed. And it does start to feel like... The underrated Jodie Foster film yeah. Flight Plan. <laughs> We're like, is this girl even real? Really? Who sent this letter? Who is this a picture of? What is going on? He can't get any straight answers. I know. Well, it does start to feel like you'd be like, is this a solid enough lead for me to follow? But to be fair to him, right away, you're like, okay, this is clearly off. And they're acting just suspicious enough because they, as we find out, they always got to keep him on the hook a little bit. That's right. Yeah. They can't be too obstructive because then he might just leave and think it's a prank or something. I'm in over my head. Oh, yeah. Or I was tricked into coming here, which is true, but obviously they can't have him go down that path or the whole plan is ruined. Howie notices a series of photographs in the tavern celebrating the annual harvest, each featuring a young girl as the May Queen which is something that people may remember from Midsummer. That's right, yeah. In the British Isles and parts of the Commonwealth, the May Queen or Queen of May is a personification of the May Day holiday and of springtime and also summer. The May Queen is a girl who rides or walks at the front of a parade for May Day celebrations. She wears a white gown to symbolize purity and usually a tiara or crown. Her duty is to begin the May Day celebrations. There isn't anything necessarily inherently evil about it yet it somehow worked its way into two horror films certainly surrounded by weirdness when i think of it the photograph of the most recent celebration in 1972 is conspicuously missing the landlord tells howie that it was actually broken and that's why it's not hanging there but yeah, you can buy again it. just enough yeah. suspicion to be like well what's going on here well this does seem like a pretty rowdy crowd you can understand a, a picture falling off the wall and to go along with that howie is disturbed by how disgusting the food is and that they don't have anything fresh including these supposedly world famous apples and again there's just like a little bit of suspicion and the answer doesn't quite fit because willow is saying something to the effect of oh i suspect they were already all exported <laughs> like we don't even keep any apples for we ourselves. have no inventory we don't know what happened so yes as you mentioned the hook with summer isle is that they have a more moderate temperature more t moderate climate which is unusual and there's various other factors and they've been able to grow more exotic fruits and crops than anywhere else uh -huh. in the united kingdom when you get a look at it though you're like huh this seems out of place there's some weird shots where they do have palm trees right. and stuff i'm not really sure what's going on exactly but it looks kind of cool just because everything doesn't look like it would fit there. Yeah, it's kind of like lost or something. Yeah, yeah. There's like polar bears running around. <laughs> it's all overwhelming and upsetting for Howie. The Islanders 
start copulating openly in the fields when he goes outside. Yeah, what a first night, huh? They include children in the May Day celebrations. They teach children of the Phallic Association <laughs> of the Maypole. He's like, well, I see where this island's gone wrong. At this one is what point, you teach these kids. They place toads in mouths to cure sore throats. It's all very foreign and weird to <laughs> a devout Christian who doesn't believe in this stuff. It's all an affront to him. <laughs> just that mom, I'm sick. And she's like, here, take this. And just shoves a frog in her mouth. At one point, there's a nude woman straddling a grave, sobbing. Yeah. We've all been there. Sure. <laughs> I was like, this island seems fun. So there are some noticeable differences here in the theatrical cut versus the director's cut and extended. And this is one place where the director's cut and the, the final cut here are similar. In the theatrical cut, it actually just goes to what appears as Howie's second night, which we'll get to later because that's the version we're doing. Big moment in the movie. In the director's cut and this final cut, there's an earlier appearance of Lord Summerisle outside of Willow's window because she has the room next door to Howie at the Green Man Inn, and he over sees this or he witnesses this out from his window seeing that Lord Summerisle has brought an offering to Aphrodite as he calls her which is a sexual offering and it seems like a younger guy mm-hmm. that is going to go up to her bedroom and have some fun as some sort of a s- sacrifice as they say I guess you could speculate whether or not this is all a show for Howie's benefit or if this is something that actually happens frequently I don't know it seems like it's directed at Howie because it's driving him batshit crazy next door <laughs> just like everything else that's going on willow is the the temptress obviously and he can overhear her moaning and having herself a time over there and as we learn through context clues or if you watch their director's cut we know for sure that he is a virgin that he has a girlfriend that he's waiting to get married to before having sex so this is all uh-huh. a lot because he doesn't look like that young of a guy. No. He's been going through a lot of years of torture. I was thinking that. It seems like weird that a guy this age is even engaged. I'm like, once you get to that point, aren't you just getting married in Vegas? <laughs> he just seems like an older dude. I think I could turn and live with animals. They are so placid and self-contained. They do not lie awake in the dark and weep for their sins. They do not make me sick discussing their duty to God. Not one of them kneels to another or to his own kind that lived thousands of years ago. Not one of them is respectable or unhappy all over the earth. Summer Isle hanging around outside just talking to snails <laughs> saying that he would live with animals which is basically paraphrasing a Walt Whitman poem I will say that even though I do enjoy this because it adds oh, to yeah. like the building temptation I wouldn't have had it be Summer Isle I think it, it would be better if you saved the Summer Isle reveal to where it is in the theatrical cut which is at his estate this is right. a weird moment to have it just be him outside yeah. the window because you, you don't so, aren't we in like some weird like snail imagery woven in here too yeah you don't get that same level of significance with his character. Right. Yet. It just seems like an underling would be doing this. Yeah, yeah. 
At the local school the next day, Howie asks the students about Rowan, but all deny her existence. Uh-huh. Then he checks the attendance. He checks the school register and finds Rowan's name. He then questions the school teacher. <laughs> Completely not suspicious. Who directs him to Rowan's grave. <laughs> In the woods there grew a tree, and a fine, fine tree was he. And on that tree there was a limb, and on that limb there was a branch, and on that branch there was a nest, and in that nest there was an egg, and in that egg there was a bird, and from that bird a feather came, and of that feather was a that bed there was a girl, and on that girl there was a man, and from that man there was a seed, and from that seed there was a boy, and from that boy there was a man, and from that man there was a grave, and from that grave there grew a tree. symbolizing the generative force in nature. Oh, can I help you? I like the part when he's like, okay, well, do you all any of you know Rowan Morrison? He's passing this picture around, and then he just erases the chalkboard. <laughs> it wasn't like one word. He erased like paragraphs to yeah. write Rowan Morrison on the chalkboard. Well, they're pissing him off. He notices the empty desk, and he's like, is that her desk? And then when he sees her name in the school register, he's just like, well, you're all a bunch of liars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, he was already in a bad mood about all of the worshipping the phallic symbol outside. Yeah, he saw what was going on here. He's like, that's why everybody's fucked up on this island. It starts with the schools. He finally gets the school teacher, Miss Rose, to admit that essentially Rowan is dead, although she doesn't oh, yeah. say the word dead. She only mouths it. Well, they don't say that here. We don't say the word so she suggests that rowan is no longer alive but she's talking about reincarnation and all that stuff and how 
her energy and soul are reabsorbed. Howie's like, just thinking, on. like, oh, my God, shut up. Yeah. So now he goes over and checks the cemetery. Director Robin Hardy explained the meaning of the scene with the woman with an egg in her hand nursing a baby while sitting in the graveyard. Okay, I'm interested. According to Hardy, it is a fertility ritual, and she was hoping for another baby. I see. A lot of just weird moments where he'll come across something that is, like, upsetting to him. Yeah, I know, (laughs) but he never reacts, like, harshly enough, you know? It's never enough to push him to, I gotta get out of here. And I guess it's that blue velvet thing, like, once you discover this world. He's peeling back the layers. Well, I do think that... He's now more convinced than ever that something happened to Rowan sure. that he needs something to nefarious. follow. Right. Aubrey Morris plays the Grave Digger. He's a familiar face. I knew him from A Clockwork Orange. Oh, yeah, yeah. But he's also in Life Force, which is a... Oh, another classic movie. An underrated Toby Hooper yeah. movie. In the director's cut, there is a scene where he confronts a physician who says, oh, yes, of course, Rowan is deceased. And he's like, well, how did she die? And the guy says that she was burned to death. Oh, wow. And they cut that out of all the other versions, which I think is better because I think that would send him on a further spiral than it does. And Yeah. I don't know. That's it felt fair. out of place. It's a little too revealing. Instead, in the final cut, he goes right in and, and speaks with that woman who's known as the librarian, and there's no death certificate. But over time, now that he's halfway through his second day and he's made some discoveries, some of the islanders seem to be opening up ever so slightly, but it's clear... To the viewer, maybe, that the game is evolving. I think so. He's not quite understanding it, but now they're giving him just the the right little bits of information to keep him engaged, but they're not really revealing what exactly they know. I know. God, they are really playing him. (laughs) So this is the scene we were referring to earlier, which I think now in high definition is very obvious, but at the time was probably not so obvious. The nude scene... With the girls at Stonehenge, was mm-hmm. shot with the actresses wearing bodysuits, which are somewhat see-through. Yeah, yeah. At the time, it was really only apparent in a still photo. I see. Wow. It's funny how that happens, because it really is like clear as day. Right. I do think that... It's hot dog the movie with the stunt doubles. The reasoning was probably that they're suggesting that those are the same girls from the classroom, which they are not. In reality, they're not the same actresses. But I think that's what they're going for because that's the teacher with them. I see. Okay. And those girls are supposed to be about 12. Oh, yeah. So I don't think they wanted to go down that road. I understand. I wasn't making that connection. I saw the teacher, but I'm thinking like, oh, this is her friends. You know? Well, Howie keeps referring to them as children when he's freaking out about it. I know, but I'm like, I I don't think so. (laughs) Right. Because they don't really look like it. But I think that. That's probably what they're implying. But I think. I don't yeah, know. that makes sense. But it, it just it, I didn't view it that way. But that makes sense. Good afternoon, Sergeant Howie. I trust the sight of the young people refreshes you. No, sir. It does not refresh me. Oh, I'm sorry. One should always be open to the regenerative influences. I understand you're looking for a missing girl. I found her. Splendid. In her grave. Your lordship is a justice of the peace. I need your permission to exhume her body, have it transported to the mainland for a pathologist's report. You suspect uh, foul play? I suspect murder and conspiracy to murder. In that case, you must go ahead. 
Your lordship seems strangely unconcerned. I'm confident your suspicions are wrong, Sergeant. We don't commit murder up here. We're a deeply religious people. Religious? With ruined churches. No ministers, no priests. And children dancing naked. They do love their divinity lessons. But they, they are... are naked. Naturally, it's much too dangerous to jump through the fire with your clothes on. What religion can, can, can they possibly be learning? Howie meets with the island's leader, Lord Summerisle, grandson of a Victorian agronomist. Oh, yeah. To get permission for an exhumation. Very charismatic fella. Yeah, Christopher Lee has that very distinct delivery. I know. <laughs> Which sometimes is unintentionally hilarious right, when he's right. like, yes. Drastically so. Like, just like adding all this. <laughs> I know he wants to break out of this history or whatever that he had, and then it's like still bringing that same type of presence and delivery. Summerisle explains that his grandfather developed strains of fruit trees that would prosper in Scotland's climate and encouraged the belief that the old gods would use the new strains to bring prosperity to the island among the pagan population. Due to the bountiful harvests, the island's other inhabitants gradually embraced paganism as well. And he carries with him all of this confidence and swagger. No worries at all. He immediately grants permission to exhume Rowan without a second thought because he's like, oh, you suspect foul play. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I suspect she was murdered. <laughs> oh, then you must do it at once. Right. Like, doesn't even act suspicious at all. It's Although there has to be like a, a reaffirmation that he gave permission. Right, because I, I, I think that he just talks and talks and talks. And right, right. It is, I think, intentionally stark in contrast to how everyone else acts. Yeah, yeah. That's true. They would dance around it and talk you in circles where you're not really sure what's going on. And I think that's why Howie reacts to him that way, because he's so used to that. Uh-huh. Meanwhile, he did say, it was the first thing he said, like, go ahead, do it. Yeah, yeah. So he does. Exhuming the grave, Howie finds that the coffin contains only the carcass of a hare. The carcass is fresh. That should be an indication to him that they are fucking with him right. in the moment. Yeah. Because they're claiming that Rowan died months ago, and then there's a fresh hair in there? Okay. And he decides to make a scene about it. <laughs> he returns to Lord Summerisle's castle, who he's now hanging out with Miss Rose. It seems like they are having some weird duet date. <laughs> and he just tosses that dead rabbit at their yeah. feet. Just such an important part of the lifestyle on this island. The fucking songs between these people. Hanging out on a date in your kilt with bit long socks singing. <laughs> Little Rowan loved the March hairs. That's what he says. <laughs> and then Miss Rose starts talking about transmutation as if this corpse of the rabbit is Rowan and it has Oh yeah. So matter of factly, this is just what happens. Howie might be a fool, but he's not a total idiot. He's not buying that. So the question remains, where is Rowan Morrison if she's not in her own grave? Howie then finds the missing 1972 harvest photograph. He actually breaks into the photographer's store and finds it in the basement or something. Showing Rowan standing amidst empty boxes. The harvest, as he suspected, had failed. actually reminded me a little bit of the economy of Amity in Jaws. Oh, yeah. There's no direct parallel, but it seems like they're really reliant upon 
one thing to keep this island afloat, and it didn't go well the pr- no. prior year. Howie's research reveals that a human sacrifice is offered to the gods in the event of crop failure. He also concludes that Rowan must still be alive and will soon be sacrificed for the May Day celebrations in order to ensure a successful harvest. So we're getting close. Characters have already suggested to Howie that maybe he doesn't want to stick around for May Day because he doesn't really dig their scene. They're really planting that seed with him. Oh, yeah. Summer Isle does it, and then more people will do it in the next 24 hours or less, really. Saying, like, you know what, man? You probably don't want to be around for that. Oh, really? He's so stupid just okay. falling for it. <laughs> and that night, oh, boy. <laughs> what Will- a scene. Willow really throws the gauntlet down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's one final test. Yeah, although a weird test. She starts performing a song. <laughs> As they do. It's hypnotic. She's yeah, yeah. nude. There's funny. this enticing dance involved. This song playing. I know this song because Sneaker Pimps did like a cover of this. <laughs> Eli Roth uses it in Hostel, like the Sneaker Pimps version of this song. Oh, I could believe it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
She's right on the other side of his wall. She starts sort of like banging on the wall in time with the music. It's cool how she starts playing the song and then it's just playing. <laughs> Was she playing an instrument? Is she? Well, I thought I thought, I thought just... they were playing them downstairs. Yeah, that's it. They're it's showing somebody playing the guitar downstairs. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. She's just syncing up. Yeah, with yeah. It. It's all a big elaborate <laughs> scheme. I know. It must take a lot of rehearsals to do this. So her nude scene here has become one of the most discussed things from this film. Rightfully so. It's considered an iconic horror scene, but it's also steeped in its own controversies. Britt Eklund was not comfortable doing the full nudity, so there is a body double for the nude scenes below the waist. There's a couple of shots from behind with a blonde woman gyrating and and pounding on the wall. Yeah, fairly extreme in her body movement there is some debate as to the identity of that performer it seems as if it was a stripper that came from the mainland or something but it has been credited as other people but again with everything with her in this movie it's unclear (laughs) who it was or what was going on Britt Eklund was evidently pregnant at the time though wow she later stated that she did not know yet and was just uncomfortable showing her bottom half and that had nothing to do with it The body double scenes were filmed without her knowledge, and when she found out, she was furious. Wow. Because sure, it implies that it's her. It's her, right. She also wasn't happy with the choice, claiming that the woman had a fat ass, (laughs) which is wild to think about. body double buried. And to this day- I don't agree, by the way. She refuses to sign eight by tens of that as a picture- from autograph hunters and it just it led me down a whole thing where i was thinking about stuff i've seen on ebay and how weird these people are who get autographs because you still see it the balls on these people to take nude pictures of the woman to them to sign cannot you still see it with modern actresses like they sign shots of their nude scenes as i look around at your walls and see some of these like (laughs) prominently framed true detective (laughs) season one alexander daddario (laughs) xoxo Rod Stewart, who was dating Britt Eklund at the time, launched an attempt to block the release when he learned that she was going to appear naked in the movie. It does make a good companion pairing with Don't Look Now. Just (laughs) two furious dudes. Yeah, it was definitely a wild time because you have to remember that Hayes Code that we talked about in the Some Like It Hot episode was just sort of phasing out over the last five or so years. People weren't really used no. to the idea of a lot of nudity in film, it's and this was era. still pretty new to people. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't really imagine anyone acting like that now, right. but not that it's right, because I think that Rod Stewart was ridiculously controlling of her. He had this bizarre thing where I was re- <laughs> believe me, there's a lot of rabbit holes. Sure. Where he was like, I'm interested, keeping her as like this pure, virginal character in his mind, even though not that this speaks badly on her but i mean she i believe had been married and had kids already wow it wasn't as if she was some young this wasn't like ted nugent sure i mean i'm just just, the the shocking part is like rod stewart like how out of touch can you be well he wanted her to wear like white cotton panties only oh boy i mean there's like a lot of stuff you can read about (laughs) the rock stars were wild back then yeah 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 but he had a whole image of her in his head, and the fact that she was going to be nude in this movie <laughs> just could not upset handle him. It. Right? She does, of course, show above the waist nudity in the film, but 
the other shots are not her. Yeah, yeah. In the end, Howie manages to resist Willow, just barely. He does open the door at one point and then close it again. Yeah, yeah. It is a bizarre temptation, though. There are walls between them. Yeah, you do wonder if part of it is supposed to be what Howie's imagining is going on over there. Yeah, yeah. You don't really know for sure. Because, yeah, he can't see her. This is not a full court press. No, she's not coming into the room. She's trying to lure him in because that's what she says the next morning. She's like, oh, I thought you were coming to see me. (laughs) What do you mean when you were singing that song? But it is weird because even he's like, well, it's not nothing personal. I'm just engaged to be married and I don't believe in doing it before marriage. I didn't feel like it was that clear that like this is. (laughs) It was a siren song. Yeah, yeah. She was calling. That's right. It was clear to me. (laughs) I got it. See, I need more of a I, I I need more of a signal than that. If a babe is singing to you through a wall and then it's like not kind of pounding on the wall a little bit, I need a handwritten note. <laughs> well, I know you wouldn't do it. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's not a big reveal. <laughs> Seeking assistance from the mainland, Howie returns to his seaplane to discover it no longer functions and its radio is damaged. He cannot leave or call for help. And so we're here. This is May Day. We're starting to see some of the Islanders wearing the May Day yeah. animal masks, which really, adds to the eerie quality of what's going on. Yeah, that is like a really effectively creepy moment where everyone's wearing the masks and they're like peering out over the bush, you know? Yeah, it's recreated unsuccessfully in the Pet Cemetery remake where there's no explanation <laughs> yeah, as yeah. to why these kids are wearing masks right. and it sucks. Not and the enough. music is unsettling now. There's an oh, unsettling for sure, for sure. score that's actually sort of reminiscent of modern yeah. A24 elevated horror scores totally. going on here. You can make a lot of arguments about our hero here and kind of his journey, but I think at this point it's not an not enough about what happened to my plane. I guess it seems like he gets to a new level of anger after this point. But what else is he going to do? Yeah, I mean, I know. he really can't do anything. He's in this situation where... Now he's stuck. He doesn't really have that much authority. He thinks he does, but he doesn't. Well, I was thinking about the jurisdiction here. Well, they don't seem to have their own police force, so they must be governed by... I think it works a little differently in countries that are smaller like that. I'm sure, yeah. Howie overhears and sort of spies on Lord Sumrile rallying the troops here as like a precursor to the... Mayday celebrations. They want to make sacrifices to the god of the sun and the goddess of the orchard. I believe that he is being moved around at this point like a pawn on a chessboard. They well, know definitely. that he's listening, and they're they're sort of teasing out what they want him to think. That dude with the little, I don't know what it is, dragon head or what. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but he's clearly making noises and luring him along. With nothing else to do, Howie begins a panicky door-to-door search for Rowan, After trying to cover announcing the entire it. island. I like that he declares that he's doing this. Well, I guess you don't need a warrant to go into people's houses. <laughs> yeah. But as he's doing this, a lot of the places that he's stopping, it's clear that people are fucking with him as he's doing it, intentionally so. I mean, including the one where there's like a little girl pretending to be dead. Yeah. Yeah. They're doing different stuff. They're laughing at him, wearing masks and popping out of things and pretending to be dead and all kinds of stupid shit. He opens that one bathroom door and finds the librarian nude in the tub. <laughs> He's just like, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Unable to find Rowan, he returns to the green man and tells 
Willow and her father that he's going to take a nap, and they sort of intentionally, seemingly freak him out with this hand of glory situation with the candle thing. Traditionally, a hand of glory was the pickled right hand of a felon cut off while the body still hung from the gallows. Interesting. It was used by burglars to send the sleeping victims in a house into a coma from which they were unable to wake. Oh, that works. So that's what they're doing here, although they're clearly lying. They're yeah, clearly yeah. trying to set him right, up to right. think that that's what they want him to yeah, do. Yeah. They know he's awake. One of the scenes that's supposedly missing that no one ever saw but was apparently scored at one point was a missing dream sequence here during the Hand of Glory section. Okay. But that's never been released. As I said, they're obviously just fucking with him. They want him to advance along the story here. So Willow leaves to get started with the Mayday celebrations. Howie wakes up and subdues the innkeeper by bashing him on the head and steals his costume and mask, that of Punch the Fool. That's right. Appropriately Uh enough. Still not getting it. (laughs) In order to infiltrate the parade. Now... This parade section, <laughs> yeah, I was getting a lot of vibes with this music. Yep, yeah, right. The instrumental tracks on "In the Aeroplane Over the Sea" <laughs> by Neutral Milk Hotel. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't it sound exactly like it that? It does. Yeah. <laughs> There's another interesting score moment coming up once they head into the cave. It's sort of a wild, almost like black exploitation music. It's like playing. <laughs> well, they need to amp it up a little yeah. bit for the drive-in theaters. Part of the parade games and fun is chasing the women, and then you kind of get into these little play fights with them, and they stick their butts out, and you, like, swat their butts. Yeah. I don't know. I was sort of like, I don't know. This island doesn't seem that Yeah, bad. how do I join this group? <laughs> Seems like a lot of fun is being had on this island. <laughs> For this whole plan, though, they're counting on a lot that this dude is going to be able to actually take the leap forward to disguise himself to join this whole event? Or do you think that at a certain point they were leaving it open for improv? They didn't know every little detail as to how it was going to work. Probably. There was some room for Like there was a backup plan. Like if he doesn't take the costume, there was something else. They knew that he was going to show up in one way or another. Right, right. Okay. Because they laid the groundwork for Rowan still being alive and yeah. going to be sacrificed at this event. And they knew he was going to be there. Oh yeah. It's a bonus that he actually took the bait and wore the full costume, I guess, but it makes sense. Even though I think that it's pretty noticeable that Alder McGregor, the back of his hair is much different than the close cropped cut of Howie. Definitely. And you can see the back of the head in the punch costume. Right. The Islanders are dragging this out. It's not all straight to business. They do a whole fake out here with the six swords where you have to go into that star shape that uh-huh. the swords make and then they bring it's it down like as if they're going to cut your weird, head off. like Russian roulette. Yeah. They're trying to freak him out, I guess, keep him on his toes, but clearly they know that they have to get this situation down onto the beach for uh-huh. everything to play out in the right way. On the beach... Rowan is eventually revealed to be the sacrifice, which yeah. is what Howie expects. Howie completely unable to keep it cool. Still wearing the punch costume, Howie charges forward, decking a guy who brought her out, and then he sets her free. 
Rowan is elated to be saved, and they flee together through a cave. However, when they finally exit through the other end, they are intercepted by some of the heavy hitters of the island, including Lord Summerisle, to whom Rowan happily returns, revealing it all to be a setup, a game, a trap. <laughs> oh, boy. Rowan was in on it, too. and it's Such an embarrassment. Definitely takes a few minutes for it to dawn on Howie. And this is one of the, one of the things... In the Nicolas Cage version, now granted, it's not much of a fight, but he, he attempts more of a fight. Yeah. I think he has a gun, and they actually have to club him in like the knees, like take out his legs a little Is bit. Is it set in present day? Yeah, yeah, more so, yeah. But an embarrassing lack of fight from Howie here. Yeah, but what is he going to do? No, I know, but come on. Try to take out one dude or something. Well, they bring in that really big guy yeah, yeah. pretty quick, and uh-huh. he kind of handles it. I think we could take Olaf. (laughs) (laughs) Summer Isle tells Howie that Rowan was never the intended sacrifice, but Howie is. He fits their gods' four requirements. He came of his own free will. I added my own opinions to these. Okay. Debatable. Right. (laughs) Yeah. When you're talking about duty, is that the same thing as free will? Yeah, he's still considering himself on the job, right? I guess it's your own free will to be a policeman, I guess. Uh-huh. Has the power of a king by representing the law. That's a stretch. I said somewhat debatable. I think that's allowable. <laughs> okay. We'll take it. Because I think in the modern parlance of the time that you can he's representing a king. Yes. Law. All right. Is a virgin. Oof. Ouch. Rush. Just putting that out there for everyone. And is a fool. I just wrote confirmed. <laughs> Confirmed fool. Deaf. Howie warns Summer Isle and the Islanders that the crops are failing due to the unsustainability of the climate and that the villagers will turn on Summer Isle and sacrifice him next summer when the next harvest fails again, but his pleas are ignored. You are the fool, Mr. Howie. Punch. One of the great fool victims of history. For you have accepted the role of king for a day. And who but a fool would do that? But you will be revered and anointed as a king. You will undergo death and rebirth. Resurrection, if you like. The rebirth, sadly, will not be yours. But that of our crops. I am a Christian. And as a Christian, I hope for resurrection. And even if you kill me now, it is I who will live again. Not your damned apples.
No matter what you do, you can't change the fact that I believe in the life eternal as promised to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in the life eternal as promised to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. That is good for believing what you do. We confer upon you a rare gift these days, a martyr's death. You will not only have life eternal, but you will sit with the saints among the elect. Come. It is time to keep your appointment with the wicker man. The villagers force Howie inside a giant wicker man statue along with various animals, set it ablaze and surround it, singing the Middle English folk song, Sumer is Ecumen in. Right. Inside the Wicker Man, Howie recites Psalm 23 and prays yeah. to God before cursing the islanders and seeing the animals burned to See, death. Even though there was not much of a physical fight, I liked his little, I'm planting the seed of, if it fails next year, you're going to have to kill your leader. Or basically... Yeah, I guess. It's not really going to help him now. (laughs) No, I know, but I will say... The crops will not fail. (laughs) Yeah, he's very confident about that. Now, we talked about the lack of fight, but even when he's in the wicker man, it feels like the door is pretty flimsy. As this thing is burning to the ground, it's like, dude, try to burst through this thing or something? The head of the wicker man collapses in flames, revealing the setting sun. Oh, yeah. That Christopher Lee shot that's become like the iconic shot of him in front of this thing incredible yeah it's really awesome set design awesome cinematography here it looks really good they could not really have done this shot better with the head collapsing in flames and then the setting sun all ablaze across the horizon it looks really cool the actual set looks cool for a small budget totally folk horror film from the 70s it's a real looking wooden statue that is huge on this scenic cliffside against the ocean it looks really good yeah yeah and you can see why this has become this iconic scene right it's sort of it's like bigger than the rest of the movie yeah and midsummer more or less replicates this in some way yeah yeah man if he would have just smashed willow the night before none of the chance yeah their whole plan would have been ruined the crops will fail Summer Isle tries putting a positive spin on it, saying that they're offering him something that's rare in the modern times, a martyr's death. Yeah, it's, <laughs> See, it's actually a good thing for you. Still, Don't worry about it. Not sounding great to me still. <laughs> you see, I'm going to tell you why us yeah. killing you is good for you, I gotta actually. Say, me burning to death is not one of the things that I've ever wanted to experience. Yeah, and I think that, again... This movie now being almost 50 years old, it doesn't quite hold the same power that it probably did to audiences decades ago, but this always makes those Bravo 100 oh, yeah. scariest scenes or well, whatever. This is definitely one of those iconic moments that, again, sort of like how I knew the plot of Overboard before sure. ever seeing it. You know about this scene, I think, yeah, yeah. because you see it in clip shows. It's that, referenced that all the time. Almost like still image, like I said, of Christopher Lee with this in the background. I mean, it's it's definitely iconic. You see it pop up and shit. What I think is great about this movie, nothing seems that scary at any point, but just that, man, it is so effective with that feeling of acceptance. Oh, man, I'm an idiot. <laughs> like It's so good. You're like, oh, shit. 
Like, oh, I'm fucked. Yeah. How did I not see this coming? Really? I know. And the first time you watch it, you don't really necessarily see all of it played out that way. You know that he's in danger just because it's a horror film, but you're not picking up necessarily on what exactly everyone on the island's doing to keep the game going. That's right, yeah. And then once you realize it, then you're like, oh, well, clearly they were giving him just enough to keep him invested every little bit along the way. And they were all in on it. And... Yeah, I think that it doesn't have jump scares really. There's a couple of like weird little jolts. There's definitely like some creep moments for sure. Like the person he finds in the casket with the oh. hand cut off, which I'm wondering, was that the hand of glory? Yeah. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> it could be. Things of that nature. Right. But yeah, it's not relying on blood or violence or anything like that. And it it's just that slow dread building. Which I do think is a huge influence, not only on Midsummer, but a lot of the modern Definitely. horror of our times. I think they've amplified things as far as the scores and incorporating things like jump scares and jump jolt moments. But the idea, the seed is definitely planted with a film like this, which really relies on the big moment, the big reveal oh, to yeah. work. Because that has to work. Because, like you said, the rest of the movie is entertaining, but it's not, you know, like, scared, no, really. No. So the ending has to come together for it to and it succeed. Does. Yeah, big time. In 1989, Schaefer wrote a script treatment for The Loathsome Lampton Worm, a direct sequel with fantasy elements. Hardy had no interest in the project, and it was never produced. In 2006, a poorly received American remake was released, from which <laughs> Hardy and others involved with the original, have dissociated themselves. In 2011, a spiritual sequel directed by Hardy, The Wicker Tree, was released and featured Lee in a cameo appearance, although it's not really clear if he's supposed to be Lord Sumrile. He's not credited as that. Briefly reading about it, it seems like it's not really anything like the original. In 2013, the original U.S. theatrical version of The Wicker Man was digitally restored and released and continued on this path of it being appreciated and being discovered by new generations and its reputation continuing to build over time. And as we've already touched on it, the film itself has this huge legacy and it started with from such humble beginnings, a film that was largely ignored and and sort of slipped by everybody and then earned its reputation over time. And it's a fun watch. I watched it three times for this because i wanted to see what the main differences were between the cuts and you take this very seriously and i was not bored by the third time i'm still kind of into it there's enough the songs are actually pretty good they (laughs) kind of got stuck in my head (laughs) some of them they are catchy yeah corn rigs and barley rigs (laughs) yeah corn rigs oh bonnie Yeah, you just kind of get stuck on some of these songs. The women are beautiful. It's such a quick, easy watch, cool. too. Yeah. And you get it. Right. It's, it's not overly complicated. You get the whole idea. It works. A character like Sergeant Howie was probably more believable in the 70s, but you still sort of get it. You get who this guy is and what the story is talking <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah, you're like, maybe this guy exists somewhere now. Howie is the representation of England, of the time, right, right, being reticent to the expansion of sexuality and sort of the sexual revolution and all that stuff, and he's stuck in a more conservative mindset. Yeah. But the unique, ironic thing is that the island is actually representing like a pre-Christian time, 
instead of like the future right, right. expanding, yeah. you know. True. But, but yeah. So I think that we're going to hold off on recommendations because of the way we're recording these things. Not much time has sure. passed since not we last recorded. So not much new to talk about on that front. A reminder that next week we'll close out listener request summer. We will do a request from Theodore. Thanks to Brian for this request. Yeah, big friend of the show. Longtime friend of the show. Still to come this year, requests from Peter, Shane, Eric, and Bill. I believe that covers everybody. Yeah. If, if you, you have never... Name, what? If you didn't hear your name, just forget it. No, I was going to say, if you have never requested anything from us as far as a listener request, you can still get that in now and we'll figure it out. <laughs> the so schedule is very tight, but if it's a first-time request, we will still try to make it work. People who have already done a request, there might be more information coming. Maybe we'll come up with something someday. But hold <laughs> off on further requests for now. Hang tight. As we alluded to in the Overboard episode, July will probably be a little bit of a light month. Maybe we'll touch on that more next week just to prepare people. I think sometimes if we take even one week off, people start bracing for a hiatus. They I've heard never that know. actually from Oh, people. yeah. They're like, oh, I thought you were on hiatus still. And it's like, no, we just took the one week. Well, we do allude to the end a lot. Well, today I was writing up and th- up through yeah. 2024. Your mood definitely dictates the future of the show. Well, there's a lot more subjects to cover, I'm realizing. Definitely. I'm like, holy shit, this is going to take forever. And there's really like nothing else to do in life. So I know. Now I'm too lazy to do almost anything. Yeah. So this is a good time killer. <laughs> just waiting for the end. Watching a movie three times to get ready. <laughs> well, I got a lot of time. That's right. Follow the show on Twitter at Greatest Pod and make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you get a chance. We always love hearing from the listeners. It's always a strange relationship with these listener requests because sometimes people request things and it takes us a while to get to it because of the way we do things so never sure if the person's yeah. still listening to the show we're always hopeful that the person who requested the thing is still actually listening by the time we get to it seems like we've had a pretty good track record recently so. i think so people pr- pretty quick to weigh in once the episode posts i think people at the very least are still keeping tabs on us even sure. if they're not listening yeah, to every yeah. episode <laughs> if you'd like a sticker let us know on twitter we'll send that to you for free and you can find matt on Letterboxd, at Matt Crosby and me, Zach1983, Z-A-C-H-1983. I think you were well ahead of me at one point for films this year, and wow. I shot right by. <laughs> you were really trying to put the time in at the beginning of the yeah. year. Yeah. Well, you know, the weather got nice. Yeah. I'm nowhere near the rate I was watching movies last it year, It is though. wild. Yeah. That was nuts. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. It was disturbing. Ludicrous speed. <laughs> Folks, I think that'll do it. We'll keep it nice and tight. Next week will probably be a little bit of a doozy, thanks to Theodore. Oh, God. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Yeah, it's a movie we've wanted to touch on for a while, but it's so yeah intimidating we, to right. cover it. <laughs> we've had to bail a few times. I actually think The Wicker Man is something we would have gotten to, too. I've, I've had that on lists in the yeah, past. Yeah. It was one I was debating, like, do we do this for Greatest October? It's not 
super fall or Halloween theme. It doesn't have that feel, really. So despite it being a classic horror movie, I felt like it was appropriate for any time. Plus, I don't really want to muddy Greatest October with listener requests. True. Got to keep it pure. (laughs) (laughs) The one good thing we have left. All right. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. It was upon a llama's night when corn rigs are bonny. Beneath the moon's unclouded light I held a while to Annie. The time went by with careless heed till tween the late and early. With small persuasion she agreed to see me through the barley. Corn rigs and barley rigs and corn rigs are bonnie. I'll not forget that happy night among the rigs with Sincerely, I kissed her o'er and o'er again among the rigs of barley. Corn rigs and barley rigs, and corn rigs are bonny. I'll not forget that happy night among.